Hi, welcome to the Bloom Podcast. He's Steve, a clinical hypnotherapist. And she's Susie, parent, cake baker and cancer patient. And together we talk about different ways to get through tough times. And meet great guests who share their amazing stories. Hey Susie. Hey Steve. The world is divided into two types of people. Unicorns versus rainbows. <laughs> They might be on the same side, though, mightn't they? <laughs> um, yeah, the world is divided into two types of people. Those who divide the world into two types of people and those who don't. And guess what? I'm one of those who do. One way of dividing the world into two types of people are those who know this crucial bit of information, that you can be a slave to your emotions or a master of your emotions. That's very binary. Well, that's the nature of dividing the world into two types of people. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up with a spectrum. You've got nine billion people lined up and you're more or less yeah. like this. Can't there be a third category of people who aren't quite sure? <laughs> well, of course, yeah. You transition from one to the other. But I do think, and we've all known people, you can see them on the on the train sometimes, people who appear to have no interior life at all and to have no way of kind of sheltering themselves from whatever emotion they're experiencing, whatever idea they're experiencing in the moment. And that's an, kind of an extreme example. But I think a lot of us find that we get down and circumstances drag us down and we feel as if we're, we're being pulled by a riptide or something, that it's, it's far too big for us to be able to do anything other than just surrender to the experience. I was on the, the cross trainer the other day. They're uh, speaking of control. They're making me. They're making me do half an hour of exercise a day. <laughs> they are making you, and <laughs> they are. <laughs> it's, and it's and it's very mean, but it doesn't come naturally to me at all. I've never never done this in my life before. So I was there on the cross trainer, and not only is it half an hour, it's five minutes with my heart rate at X, and two minutes with my heart rate at Y, and one minute with my heart rate at Z, and then repeat. So it's quite complex. So I'm, I was there slogging away, sweating and looking at my watch and to monitor my heart rate and and just thinking, oh, this is just terrible. What's happened to my life that I have to do this? This is really hard. And I'm only three minutes in and I've got another 27 minutes to go. Run, 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 whatever. And then and call me sharp. But after a while, I thought maybe that's not quite the right mental refrain to get me through this. So I started thinking instead, I can do it. And I can do it was about the level of thought I could manage between all the running and the heart rate monitoring and all that. So I was just there going, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I'm sure you'll be staggered to know that it was in fact easier to do when I was thinking I can do it as opposed, holy moly, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great example, isn't it? That I mean, objectively, you're still doing the 30 minutes. It's not. It's no harder and no easier from a physical point of view, but the way that you, if you like, framed it for yourself changed your experience. Yeah, and it's one of those things that we all know, isn't it? Or not because of the two types of people. And you're right, of course, it isn't binary because you can know that and maybe apply it at certain times. But there are those, and I'm I'm working to become one of those who can do it not just in, if you like, in little spurts, but for whom it can be a way of life. And you, you're a hypnotherapist and you're into NLP. Tell me about NLP. 
I'm not into NLP, actually. I don't like it very much, but that's a different subject. I'm sure that's how you, well, hang on. Isn't that how you got into hypnotherapy in the first place through NLP? It is. It is. And we, and we should stop doing this annoying thing of using the acronym without explaining it. So NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, it was the work of two academics, slightly wild Californian academics. One was a linguist and the other was a programmer. And they wanted to think about the way that we use language. They wanted to think about how you could codify language to understand how it works. And that was the beginning of what's been now is a big movement called NLP, which is really about thinking about the way that we use language and how it changes our experience. It's a little bit like that. Um, Sapir Wharf. I th- think it's one linguist called Sapir and another called Wharf. Mm. Well, this was Bandler and Grinder. So why isn't it called the Bandler and Grinderler theory? That would be, <laughs> that really rolls off the tongue. I'm not sure that neuro-linguistic programming really does roll off the tongue, does it? NLP is, is and, and that makes it sound like some sort of a cult, which is one of the reasons why I'm not terribly fond of it myself. Give me an example of how that works in real life. Well, specifically, that I got into this because I attended, I was at a business school thing, and there was a, a one-hour session that someone was giving on NLP. And this was for a bunch of 30 people rather like me from a corporate background, mostly male, mostly the you know sort of ex-CEOs or whatever, that sort of person. So he didn't call it NLP 101. He called it an NLP masterclass, which made me laugh out loud when I realized what he'd done. Because, of course, it was NLP 101. But if you call it NLP 101, then you'll have 30 blokes sitting there looking grumpy with their arms crossed. If you call it a masterclass, then, hey, you must be a master. And I, I, I reflected on that just a little bit. And the other things that he talked about in there, because it's not just language, it's body language and everything that we do as humans, that we think of someone as being an expert because they can do certain things. And it's not just about the skills. It might be about their personal charisma or their ability to create rapport. So that kind of got me off on a roll. And I followed that. I like to know where things have come from. And I found that if you if you follow back upstream the NLP river, you get to Milton Erickson, who was using hypnotherapy and so on. So that's how I got into it in the first place. But for me, it was all about Erickson rather than the NLP stuff itself. And today's guest is Judy, who is an NLP practitioner. She is. She's also a hypnotherapist, but she's very much an advocate for NLP and uses a lot in her work. And I think one of the things I realized when we when we did this interview, one of the reasons why it appeals to her so much is because NLP talks quite a lot about using visual imagery. And as we've discussed several weeks back, I'm very poor at that. So that may be one of the reasons why it didn't take for me. It's not the only way that NLP works, but it tends to be because so many of us think in visual images. Let me just ask you, when you were on that treadmill, were you having a kind of a visual experience as well? Or was it just was it just all visceral? <laughs> well, I was having a visual experience, but that's because I was watching Friends on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> the one with Susie on the treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> the one with Susie swearing and complaining. About- swearing and sweating. That's it. <laughs> Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Judy. Thank you, Steve. It's delightful to be here. Great to have you. Judy, I've known you for quite a few years now. To most of our listeners, you'll be a blank sheet. Please fill in the blank sheet. Who are you? What do you do? I'm a mother of two grown daughters. It's interesting I said that first, but that 
probably reflects what matters. I've been married for 49 years, that says something. Either I'm very patient or I'm married to a very patient man. (laughs) Or both. And in terms of professionally, I've been a clinical hypnotherapist for 25 years and also an NLP master practitioner. Right in the middle of there, Judy, you mentioned something, NLP practitioner. What's NLP? I often say it's mind technology stuff. In other words, it helps us manage our mind better and our internal experience better. It's really um, helping people understand that their internal experience can be managed. They're not at the mercy of their thoughts or their feelings or the pictures that their mind creates. They're actually able to manage that internal experience. And NLP teaches people how to do that. That's a a simple but a very radical thought that many people are quite surprised by when they first encounter it, that you can manage your own internal experience. By way of example, I had to put my dog down many, many years ago. It was a very traumatic experience. And very soon after, I had to be with clients and be responsive and, you know, totally present to them. So I had to manage that grief of of remembering her on my lap looking up at me with those eyes and then having to see her pass I had to make that memory in my mind I had to manage it so I did so by changing the color by making it smaller by putting it a long way away from me so that the emotional impact of that memory was lessened and I could then be fully functioning in the presence of clients Now, if I want to, I can bring the original memory back and and grieve. However, I think, you know, context is important. Sometimes we need to be in charge of that emotional stuff. And NLP is a a way of doing that, as I said, managing those internal experiences. Judy, you made the memory smaller and a different colour. So the memory was a tactile thing, an item for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm very visual, Susie. So for me... It's a very visual experience. And and when we hold a picture in our mind very closely and vividly, as in colour, as we know from watching movies, they impact us terribly, incredibly. So when our internal pictures are big and bright and, you know, vivid, they're very compelling. So to take some of that impact away, we can, as I did, we reduce the size, we take away the colour, we push them away from us to get literally and metaphorically some distance from them, from those memories. And in the moment, that can be really, really helpful. You can see I'm using more visual metaphors, pushing it away, making it smaller, changing the colour, You could also go into the body and say, well, can I shrink that feeling? Can I place it in a different part of my body? Can I change the the temperature of it? Perhaps by imagining that I'm breathing more cool air and therefore cooling it down. So from from a body point of view, we can change it. I'm very visual, so I change it visually. From an auditory person, if there was a soundtrack, they may choose to turn the volume down or change the tonal quality of that soundtrack if that was what was impacting on them and making them distressed or whatever. 
Judy, how does that connect to the idea of mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness? This has been a challenge for me because I think mindfulness, I guess, wants us to embrace our experience, not run away from it. I've had to reconcile those two strategies. And I see it that NLP is, in a way, requiring us to be mindful, to be aware of what our internal experience is to be observant of it, to witness it, and then to make changes to it, either through changing colour, shape. They're called submodalities. Although Russ Harris, who's the proponent of ACT, and I've trained with Russ, he he might not say he's an NLP practitioner, but some of the strategies he suggests are very NLP. They're very much about changing the quality of that internal picture, the auditory component, the feeling component. But ultimately, um, I don't think NLP comes out and says we're, we're to embrace or allow feelings, whereas ACT would say that it's important that we allow ourselves to feel what we feel and not deny it or repress it or push it away. I see NLP being something that allows us to get to manage those feelings so that we can then maybe do some important reflection on what they might mean to us and also in the moment allow us to function when we need to in a context that demands that we be or requires that we be functioning well. Judy, that's the second TLA or three-letter acronym that I have to ask you about. You mentioned Russ Harris and ACT. What is ACT? Acceptance Commitment Therapy. So it's one of the mindfulness-based therapies. Um, There's mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, which John Kabat-Zinn has pioneered very um, elegantly all through the world. And ACT is is just a little different, but acceptance, commitment, therapy. The acceptance part is acceptance of your experience. I could expand on that a lot. Commitment is commitment to your values. So it's a very um, value-focused, very value-driven uh, therapy. It asks uh, cl- clients to to really reflect on what matters to them and to live a life that's that's um, congruent with those values, which I find very appealing. Well, just if you look at the world, <laughs> particularly in recent times, in the recent events overseas. Do I have to? <laughs> no, exactly. We've lost touch with, with the with the failure of religion. I think religions, the church has, has failed us. That's my personal view. I think that um, what can we use to navigate our way to create a meaningful life that when we look back, we can say, yes, I did the best I could or yes, I've lived a life that had meaning and our values give us that. And it's something even well before I, I looked into acceptance commitment therapy, it's been a bit of a, a hobby horse of mine that we really do know what is important to us and that we find ways. And NLP, neurolinguistic programming, offers brilliant strategies for keeping those values in front of us so that they can guide our actions and lead a life that I think has meaning, purpose, matters, if you like. It's sort of it's a very personal journey of mine that I think we need to to live a life that has value, that adds value. Judy, can you make that real for me? I can't really visualise what is a life that is not congruent with a person's values. 
Is there an example of something you've done where you've connected your life more with your values than you had found? I'm a very judgmental person by nature. And over the recent times, I've wanted to be more compassionate and less judgmental. And so my value, I guess, is compassion. It's not a goal. It's a a value. So I want to be the kind of person who judges less and is more compassionate. Um, And you would think that that was an important quality for therapists, and it is, but it's, um, it's also in my personal life. So I've created... Uh, for myself, reminders, if you like, verbal reminders to to be more compassionate. I have I use internally visual, like almost a post-it note in my mind, if that makes sense, which is verbal. But also I use pictorial or visual uh, reminders to be more compassionate, and I do that. And I've, in my office, I've got statues, pictures, mostly Buddhist. I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm I'm drawn to that as a philosophy in terms of its and a psychology, by the way. So I have reminders, I guess, to be to be that person, so that I can direct my thinking and my my reaction, my relationship with people. Is there a time that that has actually come to the front where you've had to really, you've been in a conversation with someone or an interaction or looking at something, and you've found that you're able to draw on that compassion? Yeah, very recently. uh, My older daughter can be quite, um, I'll just use the word challenging, and her views are very different from mine politically, philosophically. We're we're very different people. And normally I would would be very abrupt with her and, and see my point of view and want her to see her to see my point of view. And I'm finding that I'm much more, because I'm, practicing this and meditating on it I'm just able to see her point of view so much more clearly and easily and to just step into her space and let her be her and embrace her as she is and I mean all I think all parents want to be able to do that but it's not always easy when your children are very different from you so that's been a a growth for me in just recent say the last few years much I think I'm a much better mum to be honest. Mindfulness seems to be a big buzzword these days, whether it be colouring books or going off into a retreat and sitting under a tree in the forest and not saying anything. I'm not sure. I think lots of people are interested in mindfulness, but not really sure how to absorb that into their everyday lives. For me, it's just about trying to remember not to be on my phone all the time. What does it mean for you, Judy? For me, it's, yes, having that quality of attention to the present moment to things as they are. Also, the, 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 I think the binder or, or the difficult thing is to, to not have judgment about the way things are. So it's a quality of attention and a quality of attitude. And I think people get the quality of attention part that they, you know, they can sit, they might go on a retreat, they may be able to, to meditate for a while. But when they go back out into their world, is the mind movements of judgment again and they just that's just part of being you know their being so mindfulness is is a way of being in the world that's really quite challenging it's not just turning up and noticing stuff it's being able to suspend judgments about about the way things are um, not making them bad or good or right or wrong or pleasurable or unpleasurable it's and that's tricky that's very very tricky because I think we're wired to seek 
pleasure and avoid pain. So I think judgment is a very normal part of, of how we we are as human beings. The acceptance of you, as you might expect, acceptance, commitment, acceptance is actually let's just accept it without judging it, just for now. And can we suspend that that making it wrong? Can we just let it be as it is? I guess Eastern philosophies would call that surrender, but acceptance to me seems just a more real word. So it's 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 difficult to stay here in the moment. I think it's far more difficult than people think. The, the mind is a very mischievous thing. It pulls us out of the present constantly. The mental constructs, past, memory, the future is always going to be better. It's always let's go to the next moment, the next moment. Oh yes, the next moment. And and so we're being pulled into that, being pulled out of the present moment. And then we find we're either on our phone mindlessly or we're just in our head with this mental noise, you know, going on and on and on and on. And we're not here. We're actually in our head. We're somewhere else. And, I mean, we all experience that. I think it's um, quite a, a harmful way to live or rather an unhelpful way to live, particularly when you're facing a challenge in life then we need to learn how to do things differently. Um, I found that recently when um, I've had a you know personal challenge and I found the ability to get out of my head and to suspend judgment was, well, I won't be melodramatic. Well, I will be melodramatic. It, it saved me in a way. It's kept me from, you know, almost a, depress- a depression, though I must say it's, it's, it's been a hard, it's been a hard journey. So that suggests that this stuff that we're talking about, Judy, is very powerful. I suppose it's entirely possible that the way that the mind has developed over millions of years doesn't necessarily mean that it's right for the way that we live now. And as you say, it probably takes a lot of work, not just to be able to be mindful or attentive or non-judgmental for just a little while, but to make that, as you say, a way of being so that you carry it with you all the time. Now, you've said it's hard, Judy. So how do you do that? How do you acquire that muscle, if you like? With practice, obviously. But uh, can I give you a personal example of what I did without doing too much history? 2019, my brother went from a diagnosis of cancer to dying within eight weeks. And uh, that was difficult, um, May 2019. But the upshot of that was he left my intellectually disabled sister, for whom he had been caring in, in limbo a bit, and so we took over by distance. We're there in Adelaide. We're in Melbourne. So we we took over that care. She then broke her hip and had to go into hospital and into care. And then in January 2020, she developed severe dementia and refused to eat or drink and basically was dying. And, of course, COVID came in March and we weren't able to visit Finally, we got permission to see her. She was dying. She just would not respond. With the intellectual disability, it was very hard to talk to her on the phone and get her to understand. She had got very good care. But she died the day before we were able to get to Adelaide. We finally got permission to go into the border because the border was closed, as you remember. We got permission to go in on the Sunday and she had passed away on the Saturday. That has been, for me, a very overwhelming experience. Partly guilt, partly just the, the sadness and the helplessness, which I think many people have experienced with COVID, 
you know, watching people not being able to be with loved ones as they died. She didn't die of COVID. She died of basically starved herself and the dementia. So, you know, it's very normal and very natural for a person to go into grief and to sadness. And what I found, big discovery I made from this experience was that if you stay there too long, there's a mind movement that becomes habituated and automatic and you can get very stuck in it and the mood and the physical impact of that become your way, you, just how you are. So for some months, I was in that low mood and physically very low. And I realised, it took me a little while, but I realised that I'd become almost into a like a neural pathway that had been created that I was continuing to build and, and strengthen. And so we sometimes forget to remember, don't we? I forget to remember. I forgot to remember what I knew how to do. And that was to start to get some distance from my own thoughts. So I started to do what the ACT model calls diffusion, which is to to do exactly that, to diffuse your thoughts, to get distance from them, to start to observe them. So I started to just to say, thank you, mind. Thank you, mind. And I would shift my my focus. Or I would say, because I'm quite cerebral, oh, I notice I'm having those sad thoughts again. I notice I'm having those thoughts. I notice I'm having, you know, those memories. And so I started to do that observing or witnessing. And in order to break that neural, the loop I'd got into, a mind movement that had become a loop, So I started to drop the story and just allow myself to feel what I felt without making it right, wrong or whatever, but to acknowledge that I was feeding it with a story and that the thoughts were, they'd become, if you like, habits, which were profoundly affecting my mood. So that's only been uh, in May last year. What are we now? It's probably only been in the last little while that I've been able to, to do that. Just, you know, to self-disclose more. I'm very much a person who believes you should just suck it up and get on with it. (laughs) So I haven't been very kind with myself and I have been, I guess, judging myself, you know, wanting, almost wanting to just avoid or repress or deny the mood I was in, you know, like, oh, you shouldn't feel this way. You're a therapist, dude, you know, suck it up, move on. You know, all those sorts of things we'd never say to our clients. But I was saying to myself, and I recognised that I needed to um, to take charge of my own emotional well-being and being be a bit kinder. So I started to practice self-compassion exercises. I started to do a lot more of the emotional, not diffusion, but that um, emotional mindfulness where I'd allow a feeling to be without wallowing in it. I always say allow has only got one W in it. It doesn't have a W at the beginning. So I wasn't wallowing, I was, but I was allowing. And I found that by doing that, it, it flowed through me rather than got, got stuck in a, in a bad mood. I don't mean bad mood, grumpy mood, I mean a low mood. And so you can compare that to the NLP that I used with my beautiful dog 10 years earlier. It's different. The NLP, I would reduce the picture, put it away, etc. I wasn't doing that um, But in the end, I got the same outcome, that I was able to get some distance from my own stuff and refocus. Because you know, and I know, and hypnotherapists, we all know that what we focus on expands. So we need to be very careful about what we're focusing on, very careful. 
So I went back to focusing on my breath to get out of my head and just started to observe the story that kept, you know, the mental loop that, that was running and started to just drop that story, not make myself wrong for feeling as I did, but not becoming too absorbed and focused on it either, to think through my values. So it's been it's been an interesting experience and certainly it's okay to be grieving and many people have different ways of moving through grief. And for me, the mindfulness approach has been, well, incredibly helpful and powerful for me. Wow. What a time. So fascinating to hear how, how someone with your skill set deals with and processes that kind of trauma. So thank you for sharing. If someone wants to find you or find out more, where would they go? Probably the natural therapy pages. Uh, my blurb on there, I think, talks um, a bit more about my approach with mindfulness. People who want to know more about mindfulness or about the ACT model, about acceptance commitment therapy, a couple of lovely books that um, Russ Harris has written. I'm not his um, groupie. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I've just, I think he writes really well. He's written two books, one called The Happiness Trap and one called The Reality Slap, which is really good if you're going through a personal challenge, a crisis. Thank you so much, Judy. I really appreciate your sharing your story and telling us a little about your approach. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Thank you so much. I'm fascinated by how she talked about the visual side, how she made her thoughts and her memories into a visual or almost a visceral thing. For her, a thought is something that might be on a post-it note or you can you can fold it up and you can make it smaller and you can really manipulate it almost like a physical thing. That's why it doesn't appeal to me because I, I couldn't do that. It would be a great effort for me to be able to do that. And it would, I would feel like I was talking a foreign language. You know, it doesn't come naturally in the way that Judy is obviously very visual. So Judy talked about how she really managed her, her very, very difficult 2020. How would someone who's not a practitioner use that visualization or those tools to manage their, their emotions or their, or their physical pain or, or whatever it is they have going on in their life? Let me give you two examples. The first one would be chronic pain, and this doesn't work equally well for everyone, but I have had clients report that it has been very helpful for chronic pain. So that if you imagine that you have chronic pain in a particular location, and then you sit quietly and try to imagine the physical characteristics of that pain, which of course it doesn't have, but does it have a shape? Does it have a texture? Does it have a color? Is it heavy or light? Is it shiny or matte? You know, you try and work out, does it have a smooth surface or a, a prickly surface? How big is it? So you try and think of all of the different ways in which it might have physical characteristics. And then you effectively degrade those just using your imagination. I mean, you typically do this using hypnosis, but that's, that doesn't mean that it can't, that it needs to be done that way. And just by working on that for five minutes, it's almost like what you're doing is attributing qualities because when you just think about chronic pain, it doesn't really have any qualities that you can shift. It's just pain. And you might be able to say whether it feels like a, a stabbing pain or a throbbing pain or whatever, but that might be about the extent of it. But if you give it these qualities and when you first start thinking about this, you go, well, of course it doesn't have those at all. 
But if you kind of play along with it, you can be surprised that actually it does have those qualities because once you name them, you know, you might say it's black and it's shiny and it's heavy and it's as big as my head or as big as this room. They actually begin to feel real. They begin to feel as if they're not completely random. If it were, is it white or black or some other color and you go, it's black. Actually, it really is black. And I suppose because pain is more likely to be associated with dark, heavy, sad, bad things rather than light, happy, fluffy ones. That might be a way of of using what Judy was talking about for chronic pain. If we turn to another example of a phobia, I'm thinking specifically of a client that I had who had a a real phobia of dogs. She'd had some terrible experiences over the years. She seemed to have been singled out. And I suppose once you get to start to be frightened of dogs, they can sense that and that can then set off possibly an interaction that mightn't otherwise happen. I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying that that may have happened, you know, from what she told me. And the traditional treatment for phobias, the traditional psychological treatment for phobias is called flooding which is to expose someone to the thing that they're afraid of. And it's effective, but it's also pretty brutal because you're exposing the person to the thing they're afraid of. Well, if you do that imaginatively, you find out that you can do it just as effectively as doing it with a real dog or real imagery. You just ask someone to imagine a tiny little tiny little dog that is a very, very long way away, you know, in, in a different part of the city or a different part of the world, if you like. And then you very gradually introduce that dog so that you're in charge of that emotion. So you decide how close you want the dog to come. And you notice, you begin to notice where that emotion arises. I can't remember the specifics of this particular client, but it might've been that she felt, felt it first in her throat or in her chest or in her tummy or in her head. Uh, but most people don't know where these these feelings start. All they know is when they're overwhelmed by them and they're shaking uncontrollably and, and crying and sobbing, by which time it's very difficult to do anything about it because it's kind of taken over. So if you begin to be familiar with where the emotion or the feeling, the affect actually starts, and you then kind of play around with that, you discover that you can actually control it. And as well, if you revisit the emotion at that lower level, when it's kind of two or three out of 10, if you sit with it, not surprisingly, after a minute or so, it starts to go away again because the body's not going to keep on flooding you with cortisol when there is no real threat and when the threat is relatively minimal anyway. So you find that you're beginning to acquire some mastery over that experience. The result of this for this particular client was I saw her once for this, and I knew that she would actually do the practice because it's not necessarily something that will happen instantly. You've got to do a little bit of work on it. Rather curiously, this client had a great big dog as a pet, and she was beginning to be afraid of this dog as well. So she had something that she could practice on quite readily, and she did do some practice on it. And she reported quite some long time later, I saw her again several years later, it had transformed the way that she interacted, not just with her own dog, but with any dogs. And she felt a lot more confident again, and she knew how to deal with it if if she had a, a similar experience. 
One of my family had a needle phobia and we did CBT. Hang on. I've, I've got to interrupt you. CBT? <laughs> no, I'm doing it again. <laughs> so what's that? It's cognitive behaviour therapy. So it's a type of therapy that, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the right one to, to define it. What they did with this family member was started them with watching, I think it was videos of people getting injections which at the, at the start the person couldn't even found very difficult to watch and then you get used to that. And then it went to playing with hypodermic syringes. So quite disconcerting to, to come across a young family member with sort of needles sitting on their arm and you go, whoa, what's, <laughs> what's going on here? But it was all about getting that, getting that. So first of all, just handling them and then putting them on your arm so that they're lying there. And very effective as well, and and that person can now get bloods without passing out or wigging out, which is which is fantastic. So I think of that as the sort of that's the the real life version with actual needles, as opposed to the using your mind to to control to control it. I should say that CBT doesn't necessarily always use needles. <laughs> so if you if you don't like needles, don't go and see a CBT therapist. Well, no, that it that isn't the I, case. It's obviously what what's appropriate for each. And something that Judy said, I noted, she said, as hypnotherapists know, the mind expands with what it's focusing on. Do you agree with that? What does that mean? It's actually referred to in psychology as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And I think that was just because at the time that it was noticed or described in the 1980s, there was this little terrorist cell, the Bader-Meinhof group. Well, that needs a three-letter acronym. Well, yes. <laughs> But somebody noticed that they'd never heard this phrase before. I mean, we've all had this experience. You hear a word for the first time, and as far as you're aware, you'd never heard or noticed it before. And then you hear it maybe twice or even three times in the same week. Or if you're thinking about getting a particular kind of car, you don't see that many of them, but then they seem to be everywhere. Yeah. And it's just this idea that where you put your attention – will tend to enlarge in your awareness. So your experience before on the treadmill, if you keep talking to yourself about the physical discomfort and the pain and how long this is going to take, then that's what your focus will be on. If instead you're focusing on your the fact that you already you've done several minutes and every second that you do is one second less that you've got to do, then you'll start to have that experience more to the middle of your mind. And how does this sit with mindfulness? Because, I mean, for me, it's about not mindfulness, right? I don't want to be in the moment of the exercise. I want to be, I'm watching friends. I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk myself through this rather than really focus on what I'm actually doing. Isn't that the opposite of mindfulness? Yes. Judy talked about the, the different ways that you can use this, that, that in a sense, what you want at certain times is mindlessness. I remember when I used to jog a lot more than I do now, that to me, it seemed as if I had almost three parts to me. There was, there was the body that was feeling the physical strain of keeping going and had a kind of protective function that it was wanting to let me know that it was feeling tired and sore and didn't want to carry on. So its intentions were good. And then I had a mind part of me that had a goal of actually getting to the finishing line so I could have a beer. <laughs> but then there's another part of me that was observing both of these parts. And if you like wanting to negotiate between them and 
maybe that's just the way that my mind is made up, is constructed, that I was able to think that way. But it actually helped me to objectify the discomfort and to talk to it, if you like. I actually, I would use the mind part to talk to the body and say, thank you for the signaling. I'm glad that you're wanting to take care of me. I'll take it from here. I'm careful to make sure that we don't overdo it and I don't injure myself, but we can do more. And somehow that seemed to help. Now, that isn't mindfulness in the way that it's traditionally talked about, because mindfulness talks about not judging and just being in the moment. But it's much closer to what Judy is talking about, which is monitoring what you're experiencing and looking out for what's useful rather than what is destructive. Thank you, mind, as Judy said. Thank you, mind, indeed. Thanks for listening to The Bloom Podcast. If you like us, tell a friend. And why wouldn't you like us? And why not? (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at... Steve at bloomcast.com.au or follow us on social media. You're using my email address. Certainly am. (laughs) If you don't like us, tell somebody you really dislike. (laughs) 